the teaching ministry of Judah Olorimaye, a man called of God to compel consecration, provoke repentance, and inspire worship by the preaching and teaching of God's word and the miraculous demonstration of God's power. God's word is about to hit you as life and strength. Get ready for an encounter with grace. Reformation and the post reformation. Before I explain these words, let's just pray for a few seconds. Holy Spirit, once again, as this conversation happens, we trust that we receive instructions from them in the name of Jesus. We receive encouragement from them in the name of Jesus. Make these words alive in our hearts, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. So, now, what we said last week established the fact that the Reformation or the Reformation, rather, was led by Martin Luther. This, this does not mean that Martin Luther was the only person involved in the Reformation, but, I mean, he was a central figure in this Reformation process. Um, we should also know that, subsequently, Martin Luther was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. But there were also people in the Roman Catholic Church that wanted to reform the church way before Martin Luther was born. However, Martin Luther's um, boldness gave other people the courage to begin to talk and begin to complain. I said, okay, Martin Luther um, penned down the 95 Thesis, so what excuse do we have? Martin Luther was excommunicated, threatened with death, and he did not stop. What excuse do we have? So, one of the reasons Martin Luther is central to the Reformation, and that's very important even in today's revival or reformation, sometimes the work of one person is just to inspire a great army. You may look at what you are doing and say, what I'm doing is very little, I'm the only one. But <laughs> many times, one person's courage makes other people also courageous, gives boldness to others, and then encourages them to do what that one person has always done. So, but it should be stated that there were many other people in the Catholic Church who also wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Now, remember, we are talking about the Protestants and the Catholic Church, but we are also saying that the Catholic Church existed even after people broke out from them. Is that not true? Today we have Catholics. The Roman Catholic Church is still alive. It's still fine, very rich, very influential to a large extent. So what we want to look at tonight is called the Counter-Reformation. But that phrase in its um, normal, should I say, rendition, suggests what the Catholic Church were doing because of the Protestants. The Reformation that happened in the Catholic Church can be perceived in two ways. Number one, you can see it as a reaction to the Protestants' agitations. Oh, Martin Luther has complained. Now, let us now react. But you can also see it as a genuine Reformation that happened not just because of Martin Luther's protests. Do we understand this now? So what I'm trying to say here is this. The phrase counter-reformation, you can look at it from two perspectives. Either it is a genuine revival within the Roman Catholic Church. Because I know that some of you have been trained to think that God does not have people in those places. There's no Christian in Roman Catholic. There's no Christian in CNS. There's no Christian in Kerubu. And But, but let me tell you this. <laughs> it's not like that. And many times, revival, reformation still happen amongst the people that the general public has given up on. God still needs one man, or uses one man, to cause a revival. So, even though you can say it is a counter-reformation, but you could also say it was also called the Catholic Reformation. So the counter-reformation can also be called the Catholic Reformation. Because what happened in terms of the Reformation was not just a reformation to the Catholic Church. It was a reformation to the body of Christ. When we say Catholic Church now, we mean Roman Catholic Church. Of course, the word Catholic means universal. But at the time of our conversation, from 1300 to about 1600, the word Catholic Church refers to the church ruled by the Pope from Rome. Do we understand that now? But we are saying here that there was a reformation within that Roman Catholic Church. But some people will refer to it as a counter-reformation, which means that it was just the reaction of what the Protestants complained about. Now, let me also say that although the reformation that was spearheaded by Martin Luther was very significant in the history of the church, after Martin Luther died, it did not exactly go out or turn out as planned. 
you already know from last week's teaching that there was a zealous disciple of Martin Luther. When Martin Luther was in hiding for about one year, the man was just doing gra-gra because he wanted to do overnight reformation. He started burning churches. He started stoning priests. And so when Martin Luther, in fact, even before he died, there was already an extreme view of Lutheranism, which was trying to use violence and force. Now, one of the things you must also understand is that although Luther complained about the Pope's influence on the church, many of Martin Luther's disciples were also government officials. And so when they became followers of Martin Luther's teaching, they also used their armory, used their weapon, used their state influence to try to progress Lutheranism. What that means is that, for instance, in Nigeria, if somebody becomes the president of the country and is under my influence, even if I don't directly tell him that, okay, oh, now that you are the president of the country, please try to progress Ramatapu, try to ensure that Ramatapu is planted everywhere. That man may just use his initiative and say, okay, I have money, I have influence. Every state in the country must have Ramatapu. Do you understand that? So many of the disciples of Martin Luther um, were state officials, government officials, influential people, especially in the entire German. Many of those guys were very powerful people. And so they did not practice the Reformation according to Luther's prescription. They just started doing their own. What that meant was that there were now factions and divisions, even from the standpoint of reformation. So somebody says, I'm a Lutheran, and then he begins to use his German influence to wage war against the French nation or the Spanish nation, who is still predominantly Roman Catholic. Do you understand my conversation tonight? So the reformation entered a very bitter, you know, bitter angle. Which, of course, Martin Luther didn't plan for that. But that's how exactly it turned out. And then many of the Lutherans became militant in their approach. The only people, actually, that insisted on separation from church and state were the Anabaptists. The Lutherans still believed that church and state can still be fine, can still be going on together. The Anabaptists were the one that said no. So the Anabaptists were seemingly the first group of believers who believed in, okay, if I meet somebody else who is not part of my denomination, they are still Christians. Many of the Lutherans did not even believe that the Anabaptists or any other denomination were Christians. They believed that they were the only ones with the sole revelation of God. So they used force sometimes to enforce their beliefs. And of course, when many of them became German leaders, it now became like a national thing. Spain and France and of course England, up to a point, were still dominantly in the control of the Roman Catholic Church. And so Germany against France, Germany against Spain and all those kind of wars happened. But what I want to actually um, focus on are the things that happened after the Reformation, called the post-Reformation, or the reaction of the Roman Catholic Church to the agitations of the Protestant movement. Okay, let's start from here. Because somebody may be wondering, what exactly did the Roman Catholic Church do after all the agitations of the Protestants? What did they do? Now, the Roman Catholic Church initially was slow to respond to the um, agitations of the Protestants. They were slow because most of the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church were more interested in state control. By state, I refer to political offices. And because their influence had been narrowed down to Italy and Rome, they were very concerned about protecting that territory politically. This particular Pope, Pope Clement VII, he was very busy trying to make political alliances with a particular king, King Francis of France. This was so because the king of Spain, Charles V, although he was Catholic, he was not exactly submissive to the Pope. Are we still together? Are we still together? This is going to be very boring in a sense. So try and hang in there. But it would not really be fair if I teach this concept of church history without addressing this. After the Reformation, the next age in church history is the age of revival. However, we cannot really just move from the Reformation to the age of revival if you don't understand some of the things that triggered the revival. The age of revival and the age of reasoning. It's also called the age of reasoning. But if I just jump to that, but that's what I will treat next week. But try and follow these things that happened 
after the reformation so that you can understand what's triggered what is referred to as the age of revival or the age of reason. So are we still together? Alright. So Pope Clement began to partner with King Francis against King Charles. King Francis is king of France. King Charles is king of Spain. Now King Charles V saw himself as somebody similar to Emperor Constantine. He saw himself as an holy emperor. And um, although he was a Catholic, he was like a reformed Catholic, so he was not exactly submitted to the Pope. So the Pope went to King Francis and began to partner with him. Well, King Charles was very angry, so he warned the Pope, Pope Clement, and said, see, I am bigger than you, actually. God has ordained me, like Constantine, to rule for him. So desist from your partnership with King Francis. Pope Clement obviously did not take it seriously. So Rome was invaded by King Charles V. And the Pope was arrested for six months, imprisoned. Basically, Rome fell. And all the seeming gains that the Roman Catholic Church was trying to gather again collapsed. Well, all of this... Um, happened around the same time that people were shouting about reforms in the Roman Catholic Church. But it was not until Pope Paul III. Everybody say Pope Paul III. This man ruled from 1534 to 1549. Until he became the Pope, that's when they now began to consider reforms in the Roman Catholic Church. And this man did not have a very good beginning. He was a Pope, but he had four children, legitimately. In other words, he was a very strong playboy from the pulpit. But when the, <laughs> the imprisonment of Pope Clement happened, he was very sober because, of course, that happened, of course, there was subsequently another pope. And the, but when it came to this man's time, um, he was very sober and he began to really consider the subject of reforming the Roman Catholic Church. He started by trying to reform the College of Cardinals, which way? basically those that appointed the Pope. So, he ensured that those who were amongst the College of Cardinals were very serious people. There was a small Christian group called the Oratory of Divine Love. They were not much, just about 50 of them, I think, but they were very serious. They were Catholics, strong Roman Catholics, but they were very serious people. They were not given to many of the corruption that the Roman Catholic Church was involved in. So, basically, Pope Paul Thierry just hired or recruited people from this oratory of divine love into the College of Cardinals. But one of the things he did significantly was to call for a general council of the church. In this general council, that's where they now discuss what they are going to do to reform the church. Um, you remember the, the council meeting that elected the new pope after the papal schism? Okay, something like that. So they will gather everybody that we church leaders from all over Europe or all over the world, and they would have a very important meeting. Let me say something here before I go on. Well, by 1545, some of the little reforms that Pope Paul was involved in was already working. For instance, there were no more prostitutes in Rome. At that time, <laughs> I think that even currently, Rome is still renowned for prostitution. I know that... Um, while grown up, we used to hear rumors such as uh, some girls have gone to Rome. You see Rome, you know, Italy. Not necessarily Rome, Italy, yeah. <laughs> of course, Rome is in Italy. But by this time, before Pope Paul's reformation, it was very terrible. But when Pope Paul became serious, he ensured that there was no single prostitute in Rome. And then he began to ensure that no book of the Protestant movement was also found in Rome. They banned all the books. People like um, Martin Luther and John Calvin, their works were prohibited in Rome, in Rome rather, so that the people would not read the Protestant writings. Please note that we are talking about the Counter-Reformation. We are talking about what the Roman Catholic Church did against the agitations of the Protestant movement. That tells you automatically that the Roman Catholic Church was against the Protestants. It's not like they were partnering with them and saying, okay, you want reforms. Of course, 
some people were clamoring for reforms, but even those people were not exactly demanding what the Protestant movement was demanding. For instance, they still believed in papal authority, that the Pope is still very important. So I will highlight a few things that the Roman Catholic Church were able to do in terms of reformation, but it was not too significant in terms of altering the entire scope of the Roman Catholic Church. And if you consider the present-day Roman Catholic Church, we see that many of the things that Martin Luther fought against is still very practiced, it's still very believed and held tightly to. Okay. But then, some of the things they did was to ban books of Protestants. They also set up what is called the Roman Inquisition. The Roman Inquisition was like a religious trial court. What they did was that now, that's actually a replication of the Spanish Inquisition. Everybody says Spanish Inquisition and Roman Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition was a very brutal cut. Why is this flying all over me? Go, in Jesus' name. Okay. The Spanish Inquisition was um, a very brutal cut. Why they were set up was to try and to execute false converts from Jews and Muslims. There was a time in the Spanish history where Muslims invaded Spain. But because the Spanish government was still strongly Roman Catholic, they forced some converts from those Muslims. So Muslims existed, but they were false converts. With their mouth, they claimed loyalty to the Pope, but in their hearts, they worshipped Allah. Do you understand that? Now, the Spanish Inquisition was set up to investigate those kind of people, try them and execute them. Because they gave them an ultimatum. If you don't worship our God, leave our country. They were not like the liberal American system that says freedom of religion. No, in Spain there was no freedom of religion. If you don't want to worship our God, leave our country. Because some of them, some of those Muslims say, okay, we worship your God. But in the, at the back, they were still worshipping Allah. So the Spanish Inquisition was set up to try those guys to execute them. When they saw that it worked in Spain, the Roman Catholic Church also set their own up in the name of Reformation, called the Roman Inquisition. Okay? So this was what they did. Basically, they called it a Reformation. It was a Reformation, but it was not too solid. It was not exactly what the Protestants were talking about or were seeking for. Now, a very important story here concerning the Reformation in the Catholic Church. A man, Ignatius Loyola, in 1521. Everybody say Ignatius Loyola. Ignatius Loyola. That sounds like Toyota Corolla. Well, he was a soldier. <laughs> and then one day he was injured in battle. And then his legs were broken. So while he was trying to recuperate, he read a book titled The Life of Christ. This book explained the gospel using imaginative pictures. So this book, what the book actually tries to do is to put you in the shoes of Jesus. Or at least put you in the presence of Jesus using your imagination. So this book will try to explain Matthew chapter 5 and then put you on the Sermon of the Mount and try to make you one of the participants, one of the audience, by your imagination. You can imagine Jesus teaching, love your enemies, bless those that curse you. That was basically the idea of the book, The Life of Christ. But this particular man, Ignatius, read this book and was very touched. And then after this book, he felt that he had a personal conversion. He felt that it was this book that actually made him fall in love with Jesus or to even believe the Christian faith. Even though at that time, it was, of course, a devout Catholic. Well, after reading the book, he retired from the army. He no longer was involved in military battles and dedicated his life to serving God as a soldier of Christ. Now, you must understand that phrase because when it says soldier of Christ, it's not what we call soldier of Christ now. You know, a soldier of Christ today can be somebody who is, for instance, a missionary or somebody who is a good Christian somebody who is an offensive Christian preaching the gospel. But what he meant by soldier of Christ was that he was going to do anything, including fighting wars, to defend the message of Jesus. Now, of course, remember that the Anabaptists did not believe in trying to practice Christianity with weapons of war. But many other people still believed that. I mean, 
Christianity is not necessarily contradictory to weapons of war. This man dedicated his life as a soldier of Jesus. In 1543, he gathered a group of six men who had similar beliefs. And their initial plan was to go to Jerusalem and become missionaries to Muslims. Well, of course, missionaries to Muslims sounds like a noble cause. But there was an undertone of whether by blood or by sword, we must make disciples of Jesus. Do you understand it now? Ignatius. But there was a war that broke up or broke out. And when the war happened, they could not go to Jerusalem anymore. So what they decided to do was to now go to the Pope and to pledge allegiance to the Pope and say, whatever the Pope asks us to do, we will do as soldiers of Christ. So although they claimed to be soldiers of Christ, <laughs> they were loyal to the Pope. They believed that the Pope was an extension of Jesus. Or the Pope signified the authority of Jesus. So they became the militant arm of the church. So give me a better perspective. How many of you have gone to an Orthodox church and you see people in uniforms, dressed like military men? Okay, that, that's the kind of setting that these guys were. They eventually were called the Society of Jesus. That was their nickname or the name they were called. But they were also called Jesuits. Or Jesuits, yeah. The word Jesuit actually was a mockery term initially. Um, it was referring to people that carried Jesus on their head too much. But eventually they adopted it also as like their nickname. So, Society of Jesus and Jesuits. Now, these guys were very, very important in what we are discussing because by the time the General Council under Pope Paul III happened, one of the things that they agreed to do was to put these Jesuit guys in a strategic position in the um, College of Cardinals and also in the Roman Catholic Church Authority. So the Jesuits began to grow. They were very influential. They did um, three things, basically. Number one, they established schools and universities all across Europe with the same ideology of, well, we are defenders of the faith. By every means, we must obey the Pope. Now, they call themselves Society of Jesus, but in all honesty, they were more like soldiers of the Pope. <laughs> because their, their allegiance was primarily to the Pope. Well, that was because they interpreted the Pope as an extension of the authority of Jesus. Do we understand that now? So, but they were greatly used by the Roman Catholic Church against the violence of the protestant movement. Because I told you, the protestant movement also became militant. They were preaching not just with the Bible, but with the sword. So the Roman Catholic Church, to defend itself, couldn't just also do preaching. They also had to have soldiers, like the Jesuits. So the Jesuits became like the militant arm of the Roman Catholic Church. But it wasn't just about warfare. They also established schools and universities throughout Europe, and they taught the principles of the Society of Jesus they also became missionaries of the Roman Catholic Church all over the world. Interestingly, one of the reasons why the Roman Catholic Church is a global movement, even after all the scandals that happened in the Middle Ages and the Reformation, was because the Jesuits were very aggressive in taking missions, the, the message of the Roman Catholic Church to Africa, to Asia, and subsequently to America, and um, South America also. So they were missionaries, they were educators, and then they were also soldiers in the sense that they defended the Roman Catholic Church against the militant Protestant movement. Are we still together? Okay. Now, let me emphatically state what the council meeting, is called the Council of Trent, what they were able to achieve in terms of their own so-called Catholic Reformation. Basically, they outlawed most of the protestant beliefs because you see even at the time when Martin Luther was trying to reform he was still a member of the Catholic Church that's why they could not even excommunicate him initially because he was only asking questions he was not necessarily against the Pope at first it was subsequently he began to defy the Pope's orders and all of that so there was no clear separation are we still together follow me please I told you it was going to be a bit boring, but try and follow. 
There was no clear separation between what the Protestant believes and what the Roman Catholic believes. There was no emphatic demarcation. Okay, this is what we believe, this is what the Protestant believe. But at the Council of Trent, they now eventually stated that almost all of the Protestant beliefs were outlawed. Anybody who practiced them or believed in them, well, they could actually face their death. But the major thing that the Protestants believed was justification by faith alone. Everybody say faith alone. That alone is the problem. Because during the Roman Catholic Reformation, they claimed they also believed in justification by faith. They believe in the fact that nobody can be saved without the operations of God's grace. However, they believed in two kinds of grace. One is a result of the gift of God. The second is a result of the works of men. That's how they touch it. So they did not believe in justification by faith alone. They believed in justification by faith and works. Listen, some of you still believe like that. You say, I'm not a Roman Catholic I'm a charismatic, but you don't see no basic theology. That you are not saved by faith and works. <laughs> we said your works is an expression of your faith. But your works cannot, faith, cannot save you. There's nothing like faith alone cannot save. No. What saves is grace and faith. Or what saves is grace through faith. It's not works. It's not grace, faith, and works that saves a man. Do you understand me? Do you believe me? It's what the Bible teaches. And that's what Martin Luther discovered. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1. Because the penalty for sin cannot be paid by any work. It is only the blood of Jesus. So if you say, eh, yes, there's grace, there's faith, but there's works. There's works in the context of an expression of faith, but not as a prerequisite for salvation. Do you understand this? But that's what the Roman Catholic Church insisted. No, uh-uh. And one of the things they were trying to actually curb was the theology of licentiousness. Somebody says, oh, okay, we are saved by grace alone. So no matter what I do, I'm still going to heaven. Now, that's not this. Don't stretch the truth in that kind of application. We are saved by grace alone. Yes! True faith. Yes! Don't now add your own addendum. Does it mean that if I die on a woman's lap, I'm still going to heaven? That's a stupid way to think. But this was the concerns of the Roman Catholic Church. Like, can you say you are saved by grace alone? Martin Luther did not mean that to mean licentiousness. He meant that to mean that. See, it is only the grace of Jesus. Because only what Jesus did was sufficient to purchase salvation. But they didn't believe. The Roman Catholic said faith and works. And these works can involve whatever the papacy instructs, including some of the funny, funny things that they were doing at that time. Are we still together? They also retained doctrines like transubstantiation. We explained what that meant. The doctrine was controversial. Even Martin Luther believed in it till his latter days. It was when John Calvin eventually... Did I say Martin Luther or John Oss now? It was John, that should be John Oss. And John Wycliffe. But there was progress in their revelation but many protestants still at the point believed in this doctrine the doctrine suggests that at the lord's supper the physical body of christ is present the physical body of christ so what you are taking is not um a symbol it is actually the physical body of christ that's the doctrine of transubstantiation and the roman catholic church upheld it at the council of trent they also tried to use diplomacy around the controversy of Bible authority. Now, the Protestants insisted that the Bible authority was the highest kind of authority. Papal authority was not superior to Bible authority. The Roman Catholic Reformation concluded that Papal authority and Bible authority are the same. That although we have the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit can still give you some rema that is not in the Bible. 
That was what the Roman Catholic Church eventually concluded. So you see that their reformation was a Joro reformation. It was not really, they were just trying to be diplomatic and trying to still insist on their own beliefs and traditions. They claimed that many of the things that the papal authority was doing was inspired by the Holy Ghost and that we cannot reject the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But we agree that the Roman Catholic Reformation changed things like simony, which was purchasing church positions through money. Somebody wants to become a cardinal. He pays money. That was simony. And then clerical sexual immorality. Proud to the Catholic Reformation, sexual immorality was even happening amongst the popes. But after Pope Paul III, this stopped. And then they also emphasized the need for education amongst clergymen. They began to send their priests and their bishops to school. They told them to go and read the Bible and go and learn. That was basically what the Catholic Reformation was able to achieve. Do you understand that now? Okay. Now, I want to take you back a little bit. Back to the English Reformation. Because some of the things we are trying to consider when we talk about the Counter-Reformation and the Post-Reformation, you may not understand it if we don't take you back a little bit. This is not a boring part. So if you are already sleeping on me, try and encourage yourself. Your time has come. Okay? Hallelujah. Now, you remember the English Reformation story? How one man was looking for a male child? Okay, if you were on last week. This king um, was looking for... What's his name again, King Henry? Looking for a male child. There were parts of the stories I had to skip because that was not my emphasis. Let me tell you the thorough story. How many wives do you remember that king marrying? Two. Okay, the way I told the story last week, you think the man married two. I will show you that he eventually married six. But wait, the story is a bit long, so let me try and take it from a place where you can, you can get it. Okay, now, the, 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 what I told you last week was that King Henry was looking for a male child. Is that not so? So he married Sister Anne with the hope that Sister Anne was going to give birth to a male child. Everybody was always saying, Ah, Sister Anne, the blessed of God, finally we will have a male child. The reason why he was looking for a male child was because that child was going to inherit his throne. But uh, Sister Anne gave birth to a woman, a girl, Sister Elizabeth. Now, one of the persons who was instrumental in ensuring that the marriage between Sister Anne and King Henry went smoothly was the Archbishop of Canterbury. His name Thomas Cranmer. There was also another man called Cranwell who was like a personal pastor to King Henry. All these guys, or both of these guys, tried to help the king to break away from the Roman government because from the Roman Catholic Church, rather. Once King Henry went to marry Sister Anne, the Roman Catholic Church said, No, we don't do that here. You don't divorce your wife because you are looking for another child. So they excommunicated King Henry. And so the idea of the Anglican Church, the English Church, which was not different in practice to the Catholic Church, they only changed a few things. But at that time, it was more of a political reformation. But lots of things happened after this story, which you should be aware of. Now, Sister Anne, that gave birth to Elizabeth, she actually had three children. But only Elizabeth survived. And one of those, one of uh, the three children, or the two children that did not survive, was a male child. But the child was deformed in the womb, and so the pregnancy was miscarried. Are you still listening to me? In those days, however, miscarriages were attached to some superstition. Anybody who had a miscarriage was believed to be fetish. Now, which they get miscarriage. Now, blood-sucking demon, they get miscarriage. So, when they discovered that, or they believed that the child that was miscarried was actually a male child, King Henry began to say that this sister Anne is seducing with which power. It was witchcraft seduction that made him even like her in the first place. So they dissolved the marriage and beheaded Sister Anne. 
They cut her head off. Even though she gave birth to Elizabeth. Please note Elizabeth. She's a very important figure in this conversation. I will tell you why shortly. Eleven days later, Henry married again. After the cops, sister Anne's head. Everybody say eleven days. He married a sister Jane, who was already pregnant. <laughs> she was already pregnant. And then she finally gave birth to a male child. Edward is his name. But Jane died 12 days later. 12 days later from the complications of the birth. So this king, she never gets wife. Anne died. She was beheaded. Jane that gave birth to Edward. Died from complications from the pregnancy. Now, at this point, there was now a peace agreement between King Francis and King Charles. Who is King Francis? King of France. Who is King Charles? King of Spain. King Charles V. They signed a peace deal. They were at war before. They signed a peace deal. The Pope, remember, was not in agreement with King of England because King of England detached from the Roman Catholic influence. So the Pope was now encouraging King Charles and King Francis to go and invade England and get back England from the hand of King Henry and make it a Catholic territory once again. Well, when this happened, King Henry became afraid, so he went to go and consult with the German Protestant people and said, okay, you people in Germany here, help me King of France and King of Spain are trying to attack me or they are planning to attack me. Those ones were Lutherans in Germany. They were Lutherans. So they say, if you want us to help you, you must come and give a public statement renouncing all the Roman Catholic teachings and beliefs, especially transubstantiation and many of the other things that the Council of Trent agreed on. But uh, although King Henry was not under the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, he was still Roman Catholic in his heart. As I said, the reformation of the English people did not really begin on the spiritual note. He still believed in the whole idea of transubstantiation and all of those things, but he did not just allow the Roman Catholic Church influence to be on the Anglican Church because of his own personal selfish um, interest in Sister Anne or in a male child. Do you understand that now? So the man was like using that to say, oh, me, I cannot denounce something so... But he denounced about three of them. But that was not enough to get the support of the German Lutherans. But the war did not happen yet. King France and King Charles had not yet invaded England. His personal pastor, Pastor Cromwell, was now looking for a way because Cromwell was very Protestant in his ideology. Very Protestant. So he was looking for a way. How can we have a collaboration between England and Germany? So he recommended that, you know, by this time, this man was still normal. There was no wife. Are we still together? He recommended another lady, another sister Anne. Sister Anne of Cleves. She was German. This lady was reputed to be very beautiful. There was even a massive painting of her in England. Say, hey, the new queen. Sister Anne. Everybody says Sister Anne. The painting went viral. But alas, when King Henry and Sister Anne met for the first time, there was no sexual attraction. This painting that we saw was a fine girl. Now when we see you, you know, people like say, now some of you are dating people you met on Facebook. Listen to me, listen to me. You have been cutting for four years now. You say, have you met? Yes, you have met. Okay. Where do you meet? Say, we have met online. Uh, don't decide yet until you meet physically. Are you listening to me? It may not be what you think. Apostle Duja here and um, his lovely wife met online. But they, before they agreed to say, I do, I do, they saw, are you listening to me? They saw and they said, okay, we can, we can work it out. So, uh, you, you might see somebody online, video call, they sweet, but when you see him physically, it's match. I don't understand why. So that was the situation with Sister Anne of Claims. So this uh, King uh, Henry went to confess to Pastor Cromwell that 
I used to like cow, honestly, but the way things are going, I don't think we can consummate the marriage. And so they had to cancel the marriage. But both of them, Sister Anne and King Henry, still remained close friends. If I'm many people call Sister Anne a close sister. Sister unto me. Sister in the Lord. So this King Henry, are we still together? Well, after this Sister Anne online collab will not work, people began to criticize the influence of Cromwell on King Henry and they began to take advantage of this failure to partner the English government with the German people. And so they offered King Henry another lady. Her name was Catherine. Catherine Howard. And they painted Cromwell as a traitor. Uh, love is a powerful thing. No? Amen. Amen. As soon as King Henry saw Catherine, his heart bonded to her. He did not know when he signed the death warrant of his personal pastor. He did not know, honestly. <laughs> love is a powerful thing. You are saying, say, be that, now what do you John the Baptist and Herod? Okay, this is the fine, this is the fine girl. Because you are she's not fine. In these days, this was a, this is beauty, man. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. That, well, so they just told him that your personal pastor is a wicked man. He wants to collaborate with uh, Germans. Hey, and he did not know because of love. He was drunk in love. He signed the man's death warrant. They killed the pastor on the day of his wedding with Sister Anne. With Sister Catherine, sorry. Uh, well, subsequently, his eye clear. King Eric, his eye clear. And he began to mourn that, ah, Cromwell was a very faithful and loyal man. Why did I kill him? Subsequently, the so called rumors of war between England and Spain, or between Spain. France against England did not materialize. So King Henry began to give up on the idea of collaborating with the German Protestants. Are we still together? But of course, the person who introduced him to this Catherine Howard was more Roman Catholic. So they began to convince King Henry to restore many of the Catholic teachings that Archbishop Kramer had abolished. Some of the things they abolished was, for instance, reading prayer in a book. Archbishop Kramer hated that thing. How can we be reading prayer? Let's talk to God now. He has ears. Things like pastors must not marry. Bishop Kramer abolished all those laws. So, well, King Henry restored that on the basis of love. He married um, Catherine, who was more Roman Catholic. Are we still together? But this Catherine, a small girl, she was 19 years. And she was very stupid. In a better way, she was very naive. You know why you marry a king? Who don't know the implication of marrying a king? <laughs> marrying a king is not just about falling in love. You must learn the etiquette of the palace. Are you listening? So, although the kings appreciated her beauty, she did not like the king for two reasons. As far as she was concerned, the king was obese, was too fat for her liking. And then he also had a boil in his thighs that was very smelly. <laughs> she began to fall in love with some of the palace guards. And then she had an affair with one of them. The thing became viral. They cut off her head. So how many, how many wives now? This is the fifth one. <laughs> so you see that this uh, King Edward, he got issue with wife. Every time I marry, every time I marry, something will happen. Eventually, Henry married another woman. Catherine again. Catherine Power. He likes cartoons. 
So, Catherine Parr. Are we, are we still together? <laughs> Catherine Parr was a bit more matured. She was, a, she was twice a widow already. Yeah. Now, at this point in time, King Edward, King Henry was, he was old too now. This was his sixth wife. He think he was a young man. So he just said, give me any, any faithful woman. I'm tired of all these fine girls. Just give me any faithful woman. I will stay with me. He married Catherine Parr. But Catherine Parr was fundamentally Protestant. Uh, so she was very matured. One of the things she had was wisdom. And she began to reconcile the female children of this King Henry to him. So the fact that you didn't give back to a male child until your third wife does not mean that you should not have a good relationship with your female child. Because, for instance, Elizabeth and her sister, Mary, they were not really relating well with the king. The king did not like them. Because we are looking for male child, we are looking for male child. We don't like you ladies. But Queen Catherine Power was very mature to reconcile King Henry with his female children. And also became, she also became very close to his male child, King Prince Edward, rather. So the king trusted her so much so that when he went to war or went to battle, he handed over the reins of the kingdom or the keys of the kingdom to her. When she saw that the king trusted her, she became very comfortable to start to teach the king or talk to the king about her own spiritual beliefs. That you know that this prayer to Mary is not good. This prayer to Mary are doing is not good. But the king was not really very keen on hearing it. However, this woman could talk a lot. So every day she would call the king like, have you read your Bible today? So the king began to tell his, his personal pastor that this woman is disturbing me. I like him, but she did talk. Everything in the Bible, 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 Bible. And that personal pastor was in a very large sense, close to the Roman Catholic Church. So, when the pastor, pastor heard it, he said, ah, we are going to investigate her. Maybe she's a Protestant spy. And they began to investigate Queen Catherine Power. They now accused her of being very close to a very prominent Protestant female figure. Her name was Anne Askew, Sister Anne Askew. So they arrested Sister Anne Askew and began to torture her to get information as to whether she's close to the Queen Catherine Power. Do we understand? Sister Anne asked you, she knows Jabo, she said she was never going to implicate the Queen. She refused to say anything till they eventually killed her. When they killed her, they planned that they were going to also go and capture Queen Catherine Power and kill her. Because the body language of the King suggested that I don't like this woman again. She's always talking me about Bible, about Bible. Are we still together? When the king heard, the queen heard the report, she borrowed sense. So she went to the king and knelt down and said, What's king in Yoruba? Obami. Kabiesi. Do you know that the reason I've been teaching you about the Bible is because of the boil you had? I just wanted to distract you from that boil, the pain of the boil, so you can have hope in eternal life. I believe in you. I'm loyal to you. I'm submissive to you. She was a very wise woman. <laughs> the king said, eh? It's all, it's all because we had to do something for the boy. That's why you were teaching me to say yes. Ah, eh, we are together then. But before then, they had already collected the signature of the king to cut off her head. So the next day, the people came to come and cut off the queen's head. But to their amazement, they saw that the king and the queen were doing love lovey together. You remember the story of Esther and um, Haman? That was the setting. So they entered to come and carry the, the king. said, you want to come and carry my wife in my presence and kill her? So that was where the Roman Catholic influence lost favor with King Henry from that point. Who sent you? He said, ah, it's your pastor. No. That pastor was very close to the Roman Catholic Church. So he said, eh, so now which one of the plan? When I want to kill my wife, I don't say we don't set you. Bad belay people. 
So the influence of the Roman Catholic Church stopped because of the king's anger. I'm not sure he executed those who sent those guys, but definitely he did not listen to them anymore. But the king died and his son, King um, Edward, took over at age nine. He was nine when the king died. He could not take over, of course, because he had to mature. Now, <laughs> are we still together? Now, this um, King Edward, son of King Henry, his education was also largely Protestant. Most of the people that, sent, that educated him were Protestant lecturers. So he was more on the side of the Protestant. And so he abolished many of the Catholic laws that, Roman, that King Henry brought back. Do you understand that? He abolished it as soon as he became a little bit older. However, before he became um, mature enough to rule, there was a man called Seymour who was in charge of the nation. And um, Seymour was also more Protestant. So, Archbishop Kramer, interestingly, was still alive. He found a way of escaping all the death, cutting of head, cutting of head matters that was happening. So, he began to mentor the king Edward. And so Protestants, or Protestants began to come to England from Germany, come to England from Switzerland, and um, Protestantism began to grow and thrive in England because Archbishop Cramer was now mentoring King Edward. And this was a very wonderful partnership. By age 16, King Edward died. He didn't live long. Just as he was about to establish. He was a very young king. <laughs> he died. No wife. The rule was that if now, just be, now there was another man, his name, okay, I don't want to mention too many names, but then, this man tried to influence King Edward and wrote a law that if he does not die or if he dies without a child, um, his sister sorry if Edward died childless Mary will rule if Mary dies childless Elizabeth will rule and they were sisters to Edward do we understand this? but eventually the throne got into the hands of this woman called Mary. Remember, there was still Elizabeth, she was still alive. The throne was supposed to be in Elizabeth's hand, however, but eventually, Mary ascended the throne. She was referred to as Bloody Mary because she was Catholic and very militant. She killed any Protestant she saw. She killed. She was the one that inspired the book, Fox Book of the Matthias. That book was written by an English Protestant who thoroughly documented the activity of this red-eyed woman here, Bloody Mary. One of the reasons why she was doing that was because Protestants were actually the one that led to the, the killing of her mother. All those fights that happened, with, all those things that happened between King um, Henry at that time and her mother. It was Protestants that caused it so she eventually even executed Bishop Kramer. Well, um, so she restored Catholicism to the English nation. Persecuted Protestants, those ones ran away. Many of them fled. And so Catholicism began to spring up again. However, that was just on an official note. Most of England were in their hearts Protestant. They liked the idea of the Protestant faith and they did not like the Roman Catholic faith. She did not rule for long anyway. She died eventually and then her sister became queen. So, what is the boy's name now? Edward, Bloody Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth's reign was very interesting. She ruled for long. But she was very, it was a very interesting reign because just before she became queen, Mary, her sister, tried to kill her. 
One of the reasons Mary was also very Catholic was that she married the son of King Charles. Who is King Charles again? King of Spain. And that was a very Catholic nation. She married Philip II, son to King Charles. So Philip II was really telling her, ah, kill all these Protestants. Even your sister, Kila, she's Protestant. She likes Protestants. Although Elizabeth was not exactly Protestant, she was like a middle ground between Protestant, uh, Protestant and Roman Catholicism. She felt like, I don't have to come and kill Roman Catholics. And I don't have to oppose Protestants either. As long as they are submitted to my own kingdom, they can all stay together. I mean, no fight. But certainly, she was more on the side of Protestants than she was of the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church were trying to control her and govern her. When her sister died, the husband of the sister, Philip II, said, even though he tried to assassinate her, I can marry her too. <laughs> Interestingly, throughout her life, Queen Elizabeth did not marry. Let me tell you why she was, what she did. She figured out that if she stayed in that middle ground region, there would be peace. So she kept giving the, the um, Prince Philip hope that toast me more, toast me harder. I will marry you. That one could not do anything. Because ah, the Queen of England is a potential spouse. So Spain could not attack England. Because one of their princes was trying to toast the Queen of England. Do you understand that? So the Queen was using, she used that scope, used that scope until the man got old and tired. And wrote to the Roman Catholic Church that this woman is pretending. Let's deal with her. She's a Protestant in the heart. She's not pretending. Eventually, this excommunicated um, Queen Elizabeth. Now, I want to say something that would help you to understand some of the things I said initially. When they excommunicated Queen Elizabeth, those Society of Jesus people, aka Jesuits, they began to send them. They are called military missionaries. They began to send them to England. So that they can begin to teach Roman Catholicism again and then establish the nation back in the Roman Catholic ways. But this Queen Elizabeth did not permit that. So she banned Jesuits in England and threatened to kill anybody who was a Jesuit. Basically, that was how that plan did not come to pass. There was a war eventually between King Philip and the English people. At that time, the Spanish people were very powerful. And so, the war was a very bad news to the English people. In fact, there was a particular Englishman there. His name is Allen. He was supposed to be a Jesuit also. But when they banned Jesuits from England, they, they, they sent him out of the country. He began to write letters to the commanders of the English army to support the Spanish government and not support Queen Elizabeth. Well, he did not know that the people really loved Queen Elizabeth that much. Eventually, the battle happened, and interestingly, against all odds, England won that battle. When England won that battle, they began to see themselves as a special people of God. This story is very interesting against next week's class, because you will understand why America called themselves God's own nation. The American founding fathers were actually from England, basically. Or not, not entirely, but many of the English um, Protestants that left, that ran away during persecution, went to go and settle in America. It's called, there's a place called New England. That's where they settled. But basically, the English people began to say, it is because our queens, you know, supported the Protestants. That's why we were able to win this war. And so that's how the faith of the Protestant became very established in England. Do we understand that? However, there were a group of people. Now, so, the Christian church or the church in England, you cannot really call them Protestants because Elizabeth allowed for both parties to try, the Roman Catholic influence 
and the Protestant movement. As long as both of them were loyal to our throne. So, there were a group of people who were not happy about that. They wanted the English church to be absolutely Protestant. They were called the Puritans. They were against the seeming neutrality of the Anglican church. The word Puritans meant that they wanted to purify the church from any Roman Catholic influence. Because the church at that point in time, they were not entirely Roman Catholic, but there were a few things that could be traced to Roman Catholicism. For instance, the clothes that the bishops wore. What's it called now? Vestments or so? Was like the Roman Catholic one. So, and they still did a few things that were fundamentally rooted in Roman Catholicism. But eventually, a few seconds here, please. Okay. The Puritans became a little bit extreme. Some of them now broke away from the Anglican church. They were called a separatist movement. So we had Anglican church, Roman Catholic church, and we also had separatist movement. This separatist movement, some of them left England and went to settle in places like Holland. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, America, New England. But many of them, these Puritans, stayed back in England. Many of them stayed back in England to try to ensure that the church was purified, as it were, from the Roman Catholic influence. Are we still together? Okay, let me try and... Um, zero this in here. Well, basically in England, there were Protestant people, there were Catholic people. And so a civil war broke out. So inevitably, you had soldiers that were loyal to the Roman Catholic Church. We had soldiers that were loyal to the Protestant Church. There's a particular man here is very um, important in our discussion. His name is Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell was the leader of the Protestant army in England. What was the name of the king that I mentioned before this conversation? Henry, right? But I talked about... No, no, okay. Um, so, Elizabeth. No, I mean... Okay. So, Elizabeth. Okay. Elizabeth died, and then James the Sixth began to rule. James the Sixth is always responsible for your King James Bible. That King James Bible, what you like... Now, James the sixth, right arm. When James the sixth, um, James the sixth, nobody say right arm, he authorized it. <laughs> when James the sixth came on board, the Puritans began to demand that, okay, this is what we want to remove Roman Catholicism, every trace of it from the church. But he did not really agree. The only thing he agreed to do was to permit the writing of a new English Bible, um, and it's called the King James Bible. Do you understand that? Okay. But when the civil war broke out between people that were faithful to Catholics and people that were faithful to Protestants, Oliver Cromwell was now the new face of Protestant leadership. By this time, we now had militant Puritans, as it were. Before they go to any battle, they will pray. They will sing hymns. And interestingly, they always won all their fights. <laughs> One of the things they eventually did was to kill the king the son of King James, his name King Charles, they killed him. This story is very important because now when they killed him, the influence of the Puritans and the Protestants in England was lost. Why is that so? When they cut off this man's head, eh, people that began to draw paintings of King Charles, his head on the ground beside the Bible, the King James Bible. So many of the English people began to see King Charles as a martyr of the faith. Oh, you know, I told you last week that paintings influenced theology a lot. Let me go see paintings. Ah, this man was trying to fight for our Bible. Those Puritans have killed him. Hey, and before you know it, the next generation began to see Puritans as wicked people because of the militant approach of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell was not in himself a militant missionary of the Protestant people. But because he was a soldier and he led the Protestant army against the Roman Catholic army, um, it, was very, it, was, it was very influential among the Protestant people. And so when King Charles seemed to take side with the Catholic Church, they eventually executed him. But the people now assumed that it was a 
it was martyrdom. They assumed that King Charles died defending the Bible. And so, Puritans were no longer seemingly embraced in the English nation. That's a very important thing because we are trying to establish that the reformation was actually stopped when it was practiced without the tools of heaven. It's not warfare that reforms anybody. It's not fighting and killing that brings about reformation. Once you deviate from the original principle of Martin Luther himself, which was to teach and to educate true love, it was never going to work. Let me say one last thing before we close tonight. The idea of denomination. We explain Anabaptist, Reformed Catholic, um, Lutheran, okay? But it did not really become very popular until after a 30-year period where there was constant war between Calvinists, Lutheranisms or Lutherians and Catholics. Now, Calvinists, I didn't explain John Calvin's role in the Reformation last week, but he also played a very wonderful role in the Reformation. He was not entirely Lutheran. They just started their own brand self of Calvinism. Their dominant belief was the belief of predestination, that nobody can decide to be saved. It is God that actually determines who will be saved from the foundations of the world. There was an extreme to that, even though that has a biblical sentiment. But there was something called Calvinism, there was Lutheran, and then there was Catholicism. Are we still together? But there was a 30 year period where these three factions were fighting. And like I said in the beginning, that was so because every faction believed that they only were the true ones. But after this 30 year period, everybody was tired. So they had a general council meeting. It's called the Peace of Westphalia. It was a meeting like the Council of Trent. And then everybody now decided that individuals have the right to practice their faith. Before, what determined the faith or the kind of Christianity in a region is the king of that region. If the king of Spain is Lutheran, the entire Spain must be Lutheran. If the king of France is Catholic, the entire France must be Catholic. That's what determined it. But after the 30-year period of warfare, and many of these people that are involved in this these people involved in this war were actually Christians, killing themselves just because somebody believes in Lutheranism, the other believes in Calvinism, the other believes in Catholicism. But after his 30 year period, then we now entered what is referred to as the age of revival and the age of reason. That age of reason was triggered by now personal belief. So a Roman Catholic Christian can meet a Calvinist and they will greet each other. No fight. We are not enemies. We can go to Spain, and in Spain there is a Catholic church, there is a Lutheran church, there is a what's the one now? Calvinist church. Do you understand that now? So that's basically that on um, the Counter Reformation and the Post Reformation. Is there a question? Let's receive if there is. We trust that you've been blessed by this teaching. We look forward to receiving your testimonies, prayer requests, and feedback. You can send us a mail at judamaye at yahoo.com. That is J-U-D-A-H-M-A-Y-E at yahoo.com. Till next time, remain in the consciousness of God's word and power. Thank you.